The other day I was reading a City Lab article about Amir Ayed. He drives a taxi. His customers bark orders at him without greeting him, tell him how to drive his car, complain that he's not running a red light for them, mess up his taxi, and try to leave without paying him. Mr. Ayad says that he feels like customers treat him like a dog. His experience at work is one where low social esteem is inflicted on him. Compare his experience with Nicole Kidman, who's won over 41 Best Actress awards and is widely praised in the national and international press. Her experience is generally one of high social esteem. I might criticise her acting in a particular film, a director might give her a hard time, but we're all generally impressed by her fame and success. Does Kidman deserve more respect than Ayad? Is her life more significant and more worthy? Or should we be a bit more worried about the fact that we respect actors more than taxi drivers? You're listening to Dialogues. I'm Richard. I'm Holly. I'm Dan. Today we're joined by Nick Barry from La Trobe University, who's going to talk to us about social esteem. And he'll help us figure out whether Nicole Kidman deserves more esteem than taxi drivers like Emir Ayad. Thanks, Richard. It's good to be here. Over to you, Nick. The contemporary philosophical debate over egalitarian justice is dominated by the conflict between two rival approaches, luck egalitarianism and relational egalitarianism. So luck egalitarianism is a theory of egalitarian justice that's sensitive to considerations of individual choice and responsibility, holding that inequalities are unjust when they result from brute luck, that's forces beyond the control of an individual, uh, but they're just to the extent that they reflect the different choices individuals have made and the risks they've taken. Uh, in recent times, though, a number of egalitarian philosophers have put forward powerful critiques of luck egalitarianism, arguing that it misconstrues the point of equality. Many of these critics instead endorse an alternative form of egalitarianism that's become known as social or relational egalitarianism. One of the chief proponents of this view is Elizabeth Anderson. So the essence of the relational egalitarian approach is that it's a normative ideal of human relations based on the idea that all citizens should enjoy an equal social standing. So its central aim isn't to nullify the effects of brute luck or to bring about an equal distribution of social resources, but to achieve a society that's characterised by equality in social relationships. So what I'm doing in my current work is attempting to develop uh, a critique of Elizabeth Anderson's theory of relational egalitarianism. At the moment, I'm kind of working on two main lines of attack on Anderson's work. The first argues that Anderson should actually adopt a much more radical approach to equality of social status than she does. And that, in fact, if we are committed to the notion of equality of social status, then we actually need to rethink the way in which we interact with people, particularly with regard to expressing esteem or disesteem based on the level of success that they've achieved in their professional life or, or otherwise. Um, I've also developed a sort of second line of argument, which focuses in particular on the account of justice uh, which underlies Anderson's approach. I know I argue that actually egalitarians should actually adopt a much more radical approach than uh, Anderson does. And in fact, that they should recognise that inequalities can actually be unjust, even when there's no wrongdoing by another agent um, or that causes harm to another agent. And one example of this is the example of micro-inequalities or micro-inequities, where subtle forms of individual behaviour in the private sphere can actually generate... Um, unjust inequalities, even though those actions themselves are not in, unjust. And I've argued that it's very important for relational egalitarians that they um, question the notion of justice that underlines, um, underlines their commitment to status equality. 
That all sounds super interesting. I think we should start off with this idea of inequalities of esteem. So we went out the other day on the streets chatting to some people about how they think about esteem in the workplace. Hiya, um, I'm Richard. I'm doing a podcast on equality. I was wondering if I could get your opinion about whether you look up to some professions rather than others. Whether I look up to... Some professions more than others. Oh, OK. Um, yes, I probably do. If someone is, say, an architect, then I'd be interested in talking to them. And maybe if they were um, a mechanical engineer, I probably wouldn't be that interested in talking to them. Yeah. Um, I, I would say I have more respect for vets and people in pet rescue and people dealing with uh, the elderly and, you know, people who need help or animals that need help. I think that would be a really hard job. But someone yeah. has to and do nurses. it. And nurses, even school teachers. Yeah. Um, I would have a lot more respect for them than, say, a politician or a used car salesman or a luxury car salesman, <laughs> really. <laughs> um, have either of you felt um, ever felt disrespected in what you do? Absolutely. Yeah. I used to work in the music industry, and when I went to work in retail, it was a massive uh, slump in respect that you got from people. Uh, especially dealing with the general public day in, day out and getting treated like a servant because you're in the service industry. And I think it's the same with everyone who works in hospitality as well as in retail. You, you get treated quite poorly. I'm, I'm Richard, I'm doing a podcast on equality. I was wondering if we could get your opinion about whether you look up to some professions more than others. I would say no, not really. No, not really, because yeah. every job has to be done. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, yeah. I'd I don't know, because it always just depends on the people doing the jobs as well yeah. and whether or not they're happy. And, like, you know, there are jobs that may seem tedious, but then the people in them do them their whole lives and they're happy doing that as well and never want to um, do anything else. It's like my dad's been doing the same jobs since before I was born and he's happy doing that. And it's like a hard job. It's through tyres. I'm not really sure what it is. What it is, but um, no, he's fine, and I've always just because he's happy with it. I've never thought, you know, like, ooh, you should be doing something else. Have either of you ever felt um, disrespected in what you do? Or yes, but that was by people at my work. Well, I had like the manager of my area sort of picking on me for a while, and there was really nothing that made sense. It was nothing to do with my work. It was sort of to do with what I wore to work. Um, so it was like a corporate environment, but with a casual dress code. Um, and I'd always get sent home to change, but no one else would. I was like, why am I being singled out? I did take him to HR a few times, because well, nothing was changing. Um, but eventually that was okay. Um, he'd never bothered me again. And then luckily he left as well. And he'd also had several complaints about the mother staff. So it wasn't just me, but at the time it felt like it. Oh, can you describe what you're wearing? What I'm wearing? Okay. Um, I'm wearing a headband with yellow sunglasses, giant Adidas logo earrings, a bright orange jacket, a stripy T-shirt, bike shorts, I guess, and then black, yellow and orange Nike trainers. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. <laughs> Well, that was really interesting, and one of the um, particularly interesting examples, I thought, related to retail and uh, the experiences of people working in retail and the, the way in which they were kind of felt disrespected by some of the customers who came in. That's sort of exactly the kind of thing I'm interested in exploring in this work and the idea that actually if we're committed to a notion of uh, equality of social status, 
that we actually shouldn't be treating retail workers any different from uh, how we treat a doctor or a lawyer, for example. Yes, um, I've actually worked in retail myself uh, some years ago, and one thing I noticed is that different demographic groups seem to confer esteem on different things. Um, you know, the, the tradies and the middle-class gardeners don't, don't treat you the same when you're at the checkout. Uh, so I think the way in which people confer esteem probably signals something about what their aspirations are in life. And we're all a bit different in that way. So one thing that I noticed about the answers, which I found really interesting, um, is that people seem to give kind of aspirational answers. So you might think if we just did a straight survey of which jobs get the most respect in Australia, um, we'd come out with, I guess we all have intuitions about what the answers would be there. Um, but the people we talked to gave answers like aged care workers or vets or nurses and so on. So they, they sort of attributed esteem to jobs that probably currently don't actually get as much esteem as we might think they deserve. That's, re that's really interesting. And in a sense, that's I think, suggests that in, intuitively people are kind of giving responses uh, along the lines that kind of is consistent with the account I'm putting forward. Uh, to the extent that we do esteem jobs, it, would, it should be for things like kind of caregiving um, or jobs that involve some kind of sacrifice to yourself. I guess probably what I'd go further, though, is, is sort of to say, well, what would be interesting is if we extend beyond vets and say, well, shouldn't we be applying the same logic, for example, to um, carers in an aged care home who usually... Uh, it's not usually the sort of job that I think comes up the top of a kind of list of esteemed occupations. However, it's doing really important um, caregiving work that's pretty difficult. And, you know, the idea would be, actually, that should be esteemed as much as... Those sorts of people should be esteemed as much as we esteem, you know, doctors, for example. So what kind of features would you say um, make it the case that a person's work deserves esteem? Is it sort of hard work? Is it difficulty? Is it some sort of natural talent? I mean, do you have a view on that? Well, to some extent, it's a job that involves probably difficulty or that's more arduous than other sorts of work. I'd say for the most part, though, I think we also need to be... It's not bad as a default position to have a view that... Uh, which I think was expressed by one of, uh, one of the people you spoke to, that actually we shouldn't be trying to distinguish between jobs too much at all when it comes to esteem. And our default position would be that we, we sort of, you know, recognise that whatever, whatever people are doing, uh, there's reason to kind of accord them a kind of equal degree of esteem. So that would be the default position. And then I'd say, you know, we might then look to further reasons why we might make a distinction. For example, if a job is particularly difficult or involves some degree of self-sacrifice or risk, uh, like a firefighter, for example, uh, that would be the sort of thing. That... Right, so I was going to say there was, like, there was, like, two views there. So, so one was one that got expressed um, by people was that you should kind of treat people roughly equally in esteem. The other view was that we're attracted to... Or, or the people we spoke to were attracted to the view that you should esteem people who do socially important jobs, nurses, caregivers, do things that people don't really want to do or that really have good social, great social benefits. Um, so those are two different possibilities. Yeah. I can see problems with doing that. I mean, doctors have a high level of esteem, they do something very socially important, but, I mean, that's one big hierarchy of esteem between doctors and, and caregivers. So do you think... Um, how do you maintain this... Uh, kind of the quality of esteem whilst holding that the socially important job should be esteemed more. Is that, <laughs> is that consistent? I think it's uh, verging on... Yeah, it, that's actually a very good question. Um, look, I, I actually think to some extent, like I say, I think the default position should be tending towards a, a quality of esteem. And so the, the, when it, you then think about is whether or not there are particular exceptions that we can bring in where maybe a particular kind of work that people are reluctant to do because it's so difficult... Uh, maybe people are doing that who are 
perhaps they're entitled, you know, we're entitled to accord that a kind of higher degree of esteem to an extent. I think there's also then a second issue, though, which is the extent to which we allow that esteem to be expressed in our interactions with that, those people on a day-to-day basis. And I think there's a very good reason why we would actually, even if we do tend to value some particular occupations a little more than others, why we should actually be very cautious about expressing that in our uh, interactions with those people, uh, because I think that heads down a pretty dangerous, uh, dangerous path, and that's be- best avoided from an egalitarian point of view. Right, so I really like I like that idea, and I like what the last guy said about there's just a bunch of jobs and they all need to be done. Right, that was a really nice thought. Um, what do you guys think about that? Mm, so Nick, you're worried that um, when we compete for esteem, we you know we create, for want of a better way of putting it, we create a society of winners and losers, or yeah. better people and not so good people. Um, but uh, as I've said, I think people from different demographic groups esteem different things. Now, on the face of it, that can look like you know, snobbery or, or class hierarchy. And maybe it is. But there can be some advantages, I think, uh, to having a kind of um, relativism about what jobs are worth doing and what careers are worth having. Because at the end of the day, human beings compete for esteem. We, we, we want esteem. But if we all want esteem in the same domains, society is actually going to end up way more competitive than if we want it in different domains. Right, if everyone wanted... To, I mean, it's hard enough to get into medical school as it is, right, because a lot of people esteem uh, and aspire towards being doctors. But the fact that not everyone does, uh, or the fact that some people esteem other things more, like, you know, being a footy player or something like that, probably takes some of the heat out of what would otherwise be an even, even worse competition. So, you know, maybe it's good that there are social hierarchies to the extent that different demographics want different things out of life so that we're not fighting each other all the time. What do you think? Can I just clarify your, your, your view, Dan? Is it a kind of feasibility thought that if you try to actually equalise the esteem given to everyone in every job, there would nonetheless be competition? Um, so we'd be better off diversifying the kinds of jobs that offer different kinds of esteem. Is the thought that humans are just such that they will compete for esteem no matter what we do? I think humans do compete for esteem, but because they see esteem in different activities, they don't all compete to do the same thing as each other. And it's better that they don't. I'd probably bring, I guess, in the feasibility point here and say, well, look, ideally speaking, I think we want to be heading towards a society where actually we don't, we don't actually express those kind, kinds of esteem. Um, and so ideally we want to be in a society where if we get rid of kind of different arenas of competition for esteem, there's kind of no competition for esteem, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I'm not so sure that that necessarily is totally infeasible, it's impo- that it's impossible to imagine a world where that were to occur. Uh, nonetheless, if you're right about that, and if it is actually unrealistic to imagine that that, that, that would occur, uh, then you could be right that it might be better that as a second-best compromise mm-hmm. we move to, towards a world where there's actually multiple arenas of competition for esteem. And I think that's actually close to the position that Anderson herself is trying to advocate here. I'm still a bit concerned about that, though, because it still allows for... You know, it's better than a world where there's only one kind of metric of esteem, if you like. Uh, But it still allows for a society where there is a distinction between winners and losers in each of those different arenas of competition for esteem. And furthermore, there's also a sense, although I put this forward somewhat cautiously, where it could actually be worse because... If there are multiple arenas of competition for esteem and there's lots of opportunities for people to achieve esteem, then in a sense it's even worse if you're the person who actually doesn't able, isn't able to achieve any of that. Uh, right. Yeah. 
Right, well, what I worry about, and I think I don't necessarily disagree, but what I worry about is actually not that we're competing for esteem per se, but that we want, we care too much about what too many people think of us. All right, now we live in a world today where we're looking at each other a bit more than we used to because we've got the internet and you know, we've got lots of photos of ourselves doing this, that, and the other, right? Um, and I think the world, a world we might prefer, is not one in which no one's competing for esteem, but people are just getting esteem off of a smaller number, a smaller group of nearest and dearest. Might be more peaceful. I was kind of like similar to, to a worry I had. So you, we've been talking mainly about social esteem. Um, but and, and maybe it's desirable in some way to get rid of a lot of uh, hierarchies and inequalities of social esteem. But if you're going to be against social esteem, it seems like you should be against individuals esteeming other individuals too. And it seems kind of undesirable to have a world where no one thinks that certain people are cool and certain other people aren't. I mean, that seems... Kind of right. So you mentioned earlier, Nick, this idea of micro-inequalities, and mm. uh, I wanted to talk to you more about this. Um, so I think it's the same sort of thing that Rich is pointing to. Now, imagine um, that it just turns out that a number of people happen to like, let's say, for example, tall men rather than short men. Um, and now perhaps they notice that uh, that just happens to be the preference that a lot of other people have. And so it turns out there's this lack of esteem going to shorter men. Um, and they realize that they're contributing to this situation. Um, I, I'm, I'm interested in what the implication of that would be, I guess, uh, whether noticing that you participate in that and that it's creating this sort of social level disrespect would give the individual a reason to start dating shorter men. <laughs> well, and that example I think is actually not an implausible crazy case. I think there's actually various types, including maybe height in men, that actually does uh, okay, <laughs> that just tend to be esteemed. So I think that's actually a pretty good example. Uh, so this is, a, this is, I think, where the case of micro-inequalities becomes really, uh, really interesting. And I'd actually say that there is something unjust about that, where social norms are saying that actually uh, men who are taller deserve to be awarded <laughs> more esteem, in a sense. And so I think there's something is, is concerning about that from the point of view of egalitarian justice. Now, that said... Uh, it would be, you know, crazy to, ins to I think, crazy to insist that somehow or other people would have to date people they're not attracted to in order to help fulfil some kind of a, you know, egalitarian objective. I think that's where you'd have to say, well, hold on, this is where egalitarianism probably needs to take a back, a back seat and other considerations like individual choice, individual freedom come in and override it in this instance. I think this is a pretty good example, though, to illustrate the way in which... Um, so somebody who is dating a uh, taller man is, in a sense, perpetuating that kind of social inequality relating to esteem and height, uh, but I don't think they're behaving wrongfully when they actually do that. Yet, you, if you're on the receiving end of that, you're a shorter man who's award, who actually is disesteemed then as a result, in a sense, you are the victim of an, of an injustice. So this is where I think that the, we can actually have unjust inequalities emerging that don't result necessarily from wrongful conduct by particular agents. That view goes directly contrary to Anderson and what a lot of other people would be arguing, so I realise it's a controversial one. But the more I think about micro-inequalities and particularly relating to issues around esteem and disesteem, the more I think that this view actually is, is the correct one, even though it sounds quite counterintuitive when you first hear it. 
Yeah, so that's super interesting. I guess the complicated thing is going to be to try to figure out exactly when you can realise you're contributing to uh, micro-inequalities and differential social esteem at the group level, and that's okay, um, and when you're contributing and that's not okay and you really need to change your behaviour. Yeah, and that's an extremely difficult uh, task. Uh, I think partly what we're aiming to do with these kind of discussions of egalitarian justice, though, is to say that it's important people are sort of aware of that those sorts of issues so then in your own personal conduct you can start reflecting on, you know, whether or not what you're doing is perpetuating an inequality and if it's something that you could actually avoid. While we were out and about chatting to people, we came across a street poet, so we'll leave him with the last word. Do I look up to people in some professions more than arts? Okay, I've got I've got a poem ready. People are crowding around to see the results. Very exciting. When we act, when we do, when we try to be like you, we have to take a second to think that if I am me, then what I bring is unique. Therefore, I think it's fair to say we are all level in this field of play. Your profession is great and mine may be different, but I'm persistent, insistent that we are the same. So let me just say that no, I do not place emphasis upon what you are doing, right or wrong, we are but one, have our own paths to tread. So whilst I respect you, I don't think you're ahead of me or anyone. Hope you liked it. <laughs> You've been listening to Dialogues, and I'm Dan Halliday from the University of Melbourne. And I'm Holly Lawford Smith from the University of Melbourne. I'm Richard Rowland from the Australian Catholic University. And I'm Nick Barry from Latrobe University. And Dialogues is funded by the University of Melbourne.